Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. These are the oracles of God, and as His ambassador, I'm here to share them with you, remind you of them, and convict us all to do them. 1 Peter chapter 4, we've taken three weeks off to pursue some other subjects, and we're back to expositional dealing with this epistle. I call it the Gospel of Hope because there's much in it of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the face of great suffering by these believers. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 6, where we've been, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. This particular audience, churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that is central and western Turkey on our modern maps, were suffering manifold a variety of temptations. They were in heaviness because of them, because God had sent them for a season. In chapter 2 and verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Chapter 2, they were suffering persecution. Verses 20 through 22 describe some of these servants, bond servants in this church that were suffering under froward masters. Chapter 3, verse 14, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake. Verse 17, if the will of God be so that ye suffer. For well-doing. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 that you read last evening are about suffering. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. Suffering was coming. And for the next number of verses, the apostle deals with it. Chapter 5 and verse 10. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. All five chapters of this little epistle have small or large references to the suffering of these believers. You don't suffer. These people suffered. They suffered the loss of their possessions. They suffered imprisonment, and they suffered death. They died for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't suffer. So you can't fully appreciate the Peter Peter's instruction for them and the hope that he provides them for the hope of glory at the second coming of Christ and how they ought to arm themselves. We're going to have to put a little bit more emphasis on arming ourselves like chapter 4 directs us against the temptations of life. And because we may not live in such a situation as some of them who were more closely connected to their masters' lives, families, and households, we we want to make this as practical and as personal for us as we possibly can. I want to read to you, now that we've reminded ourselves of Jewish converts among Gentile cities and churches who were suffering for the cause of Christ. That's why Peter mentioned several times, if we're going to suffer, let's suffer as Christians. Let's not suffer as murderers or thieves or busybodies in other men's matters. They were suffering. So I read to you the first six verses of this fourth chapter of 1 Peter. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. 
wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Amen and amen. These are the oracles of God. This is the Word of God. Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, have mercy upon us and help us to rightly divide these verses. For as much then directs us to something that has been said before, and that is Christ's suffering. The apostle has appealed to Jesus Christ's suffering twice already. In chapter 2, he directs us to Christ's suffering in verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us. And so the, the warning there and the instruction there and the example there is that because Christ suffered the way he did, we should be willing and able to follow that example on the job. On the job. Because that's what's under consideration in chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. And so he's appealed to that for as much then. He's shown us once. Then he showed us again in chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. And this follows upon the four verses 14 through 17 of chapter 3 where the apostle had described their suffering. For Christ also, you're not the only one suffering, the apostle tells his audience in Asia and the other places. Christ also suffered for sins. And so he brings it up again, because look at verse 1 of chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. He's talking about Christ's suffering. Peter saw his sufferings. Paul didn't. Peter saw the sufferings of Christ and he appeals to them repeatedly in this epistle. He's done it here now the third time we have it facing us in this first verse of chapter 4. For as much then, for as much as I've explained to you that not only on the cross was he providing the legal sacrifice for our sins, but he was also providing an example for us. We are not liberal Christians in this assembly. We do not believe that Jesus only died as an example. They do. They believe Jesus died a martyr's death. Jesus was a good man. Jesus died as a good man. We believe that Jesus died a penal death of substitutionary atonement for the redemption of His people from their sins. However, in addition to that, as I've tried to teach, He was an example. And His example, Peter keeps bringing forward because Peter was there to see it. Peter saw it. Peter wept bitterly when he had forsaken and betrayed his Lord Jesus Christ as he went to those sufferings. He couldn't stay awake with him and watch and pray, even though in this ninth verse, not the ninth verse, the seventh verse, he is going to say to us, Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Though he didn't. He's forgiven. And He's a pillar in the church. And He's one of the main men of the New Testament. And He has two epistles named after Him. So forgive Him. God's forgiven Him and God used Him greatly. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Jesus suffered in the flesh. The flesh here is referring to His physical body. Jesus didn't suffer in the flesh of a sinful flesh nature. There's so many divisions to be made in Peter's writing. And this chapter is no exception. This chapter is an illustration of rightly dividing the word of truth and Lord help us do that. But the word flesh here is used about his physical body. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in his body. He denied his body. He knew what he was going to endure on the cross. He didn't defend his body. He didn't call for 12 legions of angels to come and deliver him from the bodily torment of the way he died on the cross of Calvary. He didn't do it. He went, even though he knew it was going to be very painful. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us 
in the flesh. If you can hold your hand always at 1 Peter chapter 4, look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me to be reminded of this body that was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did God give Jesus a body? Just to look like us? Just to have something for our visual ability to land on? So that He would suffer death. The reason He was given a body was to die. And He was given a body like ours because He died for us and no others. Meaning no angels. Hebrews 2.14, For as much then, as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that is, of flesh and blood, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. He took flesh and blood. That means meat, meat, bones, and blood. He had a body like ours. And so when it says that, for as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, in 1 Peter 4, 1, it's talking about what He went through in His body. And you are called to give your bodies, as has already been said from this pulpit this morning, a living sacrifice. He gave His a dead sacrifice, a dying sacrifice, a tormenting, torturous death of crucifixion. Jesus did. And we are to give our bodies a living sacrifice. That thing that you have brought in here today that is racked with sin, that thing that craves food, drink, sex, anger, violence, revenge, hate, lust, things, pride, that body you've brought in here that's full of all those things, we're supposed to give it a living sacrifice. Jesus had His killed on the cross of Calvary to put away the sins of our body, but we're supposed to give our body back to Him as a living sacrifice. The suffering here is bodily pain and death by the forasmuch then that ties us into chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And verse 18 of chapter 3 tells us, Christ hath once suffered for us the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh. He died in His body. So when we look at 4.1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, He gave us a great example by His physical pain and death for our sins of how we ought to live our lives. For as much then as... Remember these little adverbs that we find in the Word of God. It's part of understanding something in our English language. When we find that little adverb as, we often look for a so. As so. Here it's as likewise. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise. As He did it, likewise we are to do something similar to what he did. You know, Peter's going to use the Lord's suffering even again. Look at, look at verse 13 of this fourth chapter. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Notice Peter. The Lord chose different writers for different sections of Scripture. Peter saw the sufferings of Christ. And Peter writes about them frequently like this, appealing to them. Twice here in this chapter, he's appealing to them in this first verse and in the 13th verse. But now we come to the second clause of this first verse. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves. Take up arms. Take up armor. Take up weapons. Because we are in a war. We are in a war. It is a battle for your soul. There is a lion. He's not of the tribe of Judah. But there is a lion in the spirit world for which you are no match without the armor that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased by His death on the cross. But with that armor, you can stand in the evil day and you can withstand the devil. That is chapter 5 and verse 8 that the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And who does he devour? Those that have not armed themselves with a mindset of a Christian. And so this second clause is for us to arm ourselves likewise with the same mind. What kind of a mind did the Lord Jesus Christ have? 
Jonah, are you 12? Jesus, when he was 12 and was confronted by his parents, why have you treated us this way? Said, I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. Was he armed? That is a wonderful answer. Oh, if I at 57 could be like the Lord Jesus Christ at 12. So that I would always say, I must be about my father's business. Are you with me? Now that's armed. That's armed. Do you know how much fun he could have had playing frisbee or pocket pool with the other 12-year-olds on their way back from Jerusalem? Ask me afterwards about the second game. Do you know how much he, how much fun he could have had shooting BB guns at rabbits and squirrels on his way back? He was 12. Come on. Children are supposed to play, is what they tell us. I must be about my father's business. Are you about your father's business every day? You have your own business, but you can do your business as unto the father. Because the Bible teaches us that when you men go to work, and when you ladies go to work, the, those of you that do, when you go, you should be doing it as unto the Lord Christ. Because you have two masters, one with a small M and one with a large M. Your master in heaven and your master on earth, and you can serve them both at the same time. And the Lord teaches us how to do that. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Women, during the day, you can be about your father's business. And do you know what your father's business is? When you are a wife, it is to maintain the home and to fulfill your husband's desires and requests for the domestic maintenance and orderliness and supervision of the children and provision for the future of the family. You can do it as the father's business. It means you've got to deny yourself. Jesus denied himself. And that is what this verse is talking about. It's denying ourselves. The rest, the next several verses are going to be about denying ourselves. We once lived a certain way in which we established habits that the world still has, and they clamor against us for not following them in their excess, but we have to cut off that excess and deny ourselves to follow Christ, because Christ's religion is a religion of self-denial. Lord, teach us in every part of our lives to deny ourselves and to do the will of God. Because those are the two options you have every day. Look at the last four words of verse 2. The will of God. The will of God. The choice is between what you want to do and what God wants you to do. Because the lusts of your flesh are what you want to do with craving intensity. Do you understand that? You have to arm yourself that life as a Christian is going to be painful. Life as a Christian is not what Joel Osteen is going to teach in a little while down there in Houston, Texas. He doesn't have a clue about what Jesus, who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ expects, and how we are to follow Jesus Christ. He is going to teach the opposite of this text. He is going to teach the opposite of 2 Peter chapter 2. He is going to promise his congregation liberty when he himself is a servant of corruption. Because all of them are money sick. They're obsessed with money. They're obsessed with health. They're obsessed with family. They're obsessed with career. They're obsessed with living the good life, the comfortable life. But Jesus hasn't called us to that. He's called us to follow Him, and it's going to involve some suffering like He suffered for us. And you've got to arm yourself by being prepared. The Lord Jesus Christ, when a great multitude followed Him in Luke chapter 14, do you know what He said to them? He didn't say with a great big grin and flashy, pearly white teeth showing, it's so good to see all you today. In Luke 14, 25, when that multitude was following him, he said, if you are not willing to hate father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, lands, houses for my sake, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Because there's suffering involved in being a Christian. And he said, count up the cost. Count up the cost, you people that are following me. This big multitude, count up whether you really want to be a Christian. Because if you really want to be a Christian, it's going to be costly. You are going to lose people. You are going to lose relationships. You're going to lose family members. You're going to lose stuff. Count up the cost. 
Can a man, can a king with 10,000 soldiers meet a king with 20,000 soldiers? You better think through it very carefully because the king with 10 might want to send an ambassador of peace with a white flag begging for mercy. Jesus went through these examples. Don't you start your tower of being a Christian and then you're unwilling to finish it. To finish a tower for Jesus Christ, we have to be willing to suffer. You say, but suffering has pain with it. And if I was to be listening to Joel right now, the only P word he uses is pleasure. Well, I hope that you are not listening to Joel right now because you'd rather hear the oracles of God. You know, suffering for Christ. And this may sound a little masochistic, sadistic, but it has its own pleasure. You want to try to tell Paul that he wasn't happy? I'd like to find how many in this church are as happy as Paul was. And he was suffering. But he was a happy man. He rejoiced in his infirmities. Most gladly. Therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities. Because when I am weak, then he is strong. He knew how to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did it with sufferings. Oh, my brethren, arm yourselves. The Christian life is constant warfare against indwelling sin. That means the sin nature you still have in you, the world, and or the devil, and they come in different combinations at different times, but all three are agreed together to ruin you. And we've got to be willing to suffer. The life of a Christian is suffering. It is giving up things for the cause of Christ. It is being about my Father's business. When Jesus reached 30 and was baptized... Did he know what he was progressing into? Did he know what was coming? Does it tell us he set his face to go to Jerusalem? Did his apostles warn him, they tried to kill you the last time you were there? Did that move him? He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now that was armed with something. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what was coming, and you don't, and I don't, but he knew what was coming. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. I've added the word suffering. That's what the cup was all about. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. Remember the last four words of verse 2? You know, we may be able to cheat ahead of verse or two and accelerate our way through this passage. You have two choices every day. The will of God, your will. And I want to tell you something about your will. Your will absolutely believes it is right. Your will can bark and spew and vomit more reasons for what you're about to do than anyone else can. You will cough up the sickest excuses, the most profane reasons for why you want to do what you want to do. But all that matters is what God said to do. He doesn't care about the reasons you've come up with. Do you know what he says about all your reasons, without exception, not modified in any way whatsoever? They are vain. They are vain. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your will. You can, you can, listen, I can generate. Do you want me to talk about me for a minute? I can generate more reasons to justify or do something wrong than most men. You say that doesn't sound like a blessing. Who said it was a blessing? It's a curse. But we're good at it. We are very good at it to generate things in our minds. And that's why it says, arm yourself, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. We want the, the mind of Christ. Not my will, but thine be done. Not my will, but thine be done. We will drum up reasons. We will drum up excuses. I just wasn't made that way. I just don't feel comfortable doing that. I just don't have time for that. That person wronged me. It'll be a cold day in hell when I forgive them. Where is that coming from? All of that's coming from the pit of hell. That's the devil. That's the roaring lion. That's the deceitful heart. That's the the indwelling sin that we have. That's the world telling us, don't you let anybody take advantage of you. You pound the daylights out of them. If somebody smites you on one cheek, you bust his face wide open. When the Lord Jesus tells us something entirely different. 
Brethren, do you understand your lust? Does the scripture say in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Does, does the Bible say that in vain? Does the Bible foolishly, redundantly, wastefully have those words? The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Envy is a malicious attitude toward another person for a variety of reasons. And, and this is equal to all the other sins in the Bible. We crave it. For those of you, for those of you that enjoy the moderate drinking that the Bible allows us, your flesh, the devil, and the world wants you to drink without restraint. And you condition yourself to what you think is an acceptable amount. But what does God say? He wants you to preserve and keep your wits. Your body craves it of you. I want another one. I can handle another one. Another one will, will fulfill the Word of God even better than the first one. And you create habits. And so you think you deserve it. And you think you want it. And you think you're not realizing the benefit of it when you have now changed the definition of the benefit of it from a merry heart and being made glad to drunkenness. Okay? Some of you read the Proverbs and have read them for years. And they and it says to get up. Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. But you can't get out of bed because you love it. You love those last moments are the best moments, right? Not if you have a conscience. The last moments are the worst moments. If you have a conscience. And so you oversleep. You crave things. You could be up reading the Word of God and getting on your knees and praying for your family and being a spiritual giant. This is arming yourself with the same mind. I must be about my father's business. If you're going to be about your father's business, there's no time to be overly intoxicated. If you're going to be about your father's business, there's no time to sleep too much. Love not sleep, lest thou come to poverty. And that applies professionally and spiritually. Or you crave food. You know, we live in a country that's obsessed with quantity. Everything's been supersized. Do you know when those golden arches first opened, how big it was? Is that fair? It was about that big. And you typically got one of them. Back in the day, we didn't think about buying a bag of burgers. It was about that big. You know, the milkshake had about, I don't know, 10 ounces in it. 10 ounces. And Paul and I had to share one. We still should be sharing. We live in a country of buffets, extravagance, excess. But I must be about my father's business, says to push away, to split an entree. Everything is larger and larger and larger, and you supersize it now. Do you remember that little tiny bag of fries you used to get at McDonald's? How many fries were in it? About eight? And they were only about that long? You know, now you get this bag, and it's got about 88 and they're this long. You have pride and you don't want to forgive. You have schedules and you don't want to share. Your time is more valuable than your brethren. We're going to have to face these things if I try to get through the 11th verse today. I must be about my father's business. Have you armed yourself for the life of self-denial? It means denying yourself pieces number 12 through 20 of a pizza. You say, I can eat as much as I want. It's American. It's free. And it almost is free. But no, you can't. Because we're about to run into some words like banquetings and revelings that are related to words like surfeiting and chambering and gluttony and riotous living and riotous eaters of flesh. You know, it's so easy to look like a frat party today because it's so easy. But frat parties are wrong and they're condemned in this context. And that was the lifestyle of the Gentiles around these Jews. Every part of our lives, how about your time? Are you willing to give up your time for the Lord's people? 
Are you willing to open your house to the Lord's people and to show them hospitality and to show them hospitality without grudging? Are you given to hospitality like the Bible says? Are you given to mercy? The Bible says in Micah 6, 8, for those that want to please God, they will love mercy. They will love mercy. They will crave forgiving others and being peacemakers. And so, you know, so much could be said when we, when, it, when we look at these words, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. It is a mindset of self-denial for the cause of Christ. It is doing the Father's will rather than our own will. But our will reaches out with so many different fingers in sleep, in food, in drink, in spirit, in envy, in revenge, and time management, in finances. It just goes on and on. We could preach the whole Bible. But I would lose you, and it wouldn't be the most effective dealing with the oracles of God. But but are you thinking right now, see, I want to give you little things that you can take home. And Nathan, that was very well done. I'm simple. I like little things to take home. Do you know what? Wonderful. Being full of wonder. That's about as much as I can handle. I enjoyed that. The little things of Psalm 119 in those verses. But my my dear brethren, I must be about my father's business. Did Jesus Christ drink wine? Does everybody know where to go on this question? Most people don't. Most people, when they're introduced to moderate drinking, being justified by the Bible, would raise their hands and say, Jesus made wine at the marriage feast of Cana in John chapter 2. And we would say, yes, he did, but that's not where you want to go. That's not very good proof. Yes, he made hundreds of gallons of wine for a wedding where they had already had wine. That is true. He did do that. But if you want to find out, did Jesus drink, you go to Luke chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, where you find out that Jesus and John the Baptist were opposites. John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey. He was strange. Jesus drank wine and ate bread. Totally opposite. And Jesus makes the point, look at what God has done to this generation. He has sent John, and you say he's mad. He sent me, and you say I've got a devil, I'm a wine-bibber, and a a gluttonous man. Yes. But if I'm going to be about my father's business, how many times do you think Jesus was drunk? How many times do you think Jesus was close to drunk? Zero. How many times did he gorge himself so much that he needed two hours to sleep it off and he was sluggish for the next 36 hours? Zero. How many times did he oversleep and sleep in for an extra couple of hours when the Bible tells us he spent all night in prayer to his father? Was he able to forgive Peter? Would you have been upset the way Peter betrayed you when you needed him most if he'd have been your friend? Did Jesus Anyway, we could go on and on. I must be about my father's business. All of that was to say, can you remember that? I must be about my father's business. That's arming yourself likewise with the same mind because we want to do his will, not our will. And what I'm trying to explain to you is bringing up some of those things. Why do people fornicate? Because like Nathan just mentioned, when two people have not yet come together in marriage. They're panting for each other because their bodies are craving it. There is a sex drive in men that is a very powerful drive. Very powerful. Consuming. The Bible describes it as a burning in men. A burning. And in women. A burning. And yet, it must be denied and put in its proper place in marriage. And then in marriage, in a loving Considerate, do benevolent way, not a selfish way. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna work this side of the the equation as we go down through these verses because you know what? None of you suffer, and I don't suffer. Nobody's tried to break into my house this past week and and molest my wife for the cause of Christ that I help, that we hold. So we want to go after the things where we can be a living a living sacrifice with our bodies by being armed with the same mind. Let's let's look at the text. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. Oh, brother, you can be prepared. If you're not prepared, you're going to go down. If you just, if you just walk into 
a buffet or if you just walk toward a bottle of wine with glasses around it and you haven't armed yourself, if you go to bed at night and you don't have a set time that you're going to get up in the morning with a set thing to do, who knows what's going to happen? So you arm yourself. This can change your life. It should change your life. Because our lives should be changed from what the world allows us, blesses us, encourages us, and tells us we should do to what He wants us to do. And it covers every part of our lives. He's going to demand hospitality out of us. He's going to demand hospitality without grudging. Why would a Christian ever begrudge hospitality? Because there are Christians that are selfish. Why would a Christian ever get drunk? Because there's a Christian that hasn't armed himself to restrain his drinking. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Now here's one of the difficulties of 1 Peter chapter 4. He that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. A good brother that went long before us and is long gone from London, England, would say that hmm, suffering here is death because Jesus' suffering resulted in death So it's our death as soon as we die and go to heaven, then we stop sinning. That that's what the third clause of verse 1 means. As soon as we die and go to heaven, then we stop sinning. But I can't go there. Because the rest of these verses that follow it are describing a change in life of still living on earth, but living it in a different way. And, uh, you know, since the rest of this is describing a life of self-denial, if you know that all your sins are going to stop as soon as you die, then why really worry about them now? Since they're going to end completely in the way 4.1 describes as soon as we die, then I might as well allow a little bit of them now and have, have a good time. I mean, what's the, what's the burden upon me since they're going to end when I die? Jesus' sins didn't end when He died. Jesus never sinned. Right. Jesus was always willing to suffer. Jesus did suffer throughout His life. And when it says, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that is when we deny our bodies, craving food, craving drink, craving revenge, craving envy, craving sleep, craving overworking, craving whatever it is that we crave, but we stop that. That means we're suffering in the flesh and we stop sinning because the two are opposite to each other. This, 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 this clause is to go up against those places in the Bible that tell us to mortify the flesh. Can you kill your flesh? And when you kill your flesh, are you sinning? No, because your flesh is put to death. Can any of us do that? Listen, to get this over with, although you should already know what I believe and what the Bible teaches about this, can anyone stop sinning perfectly, forever, indefinitely? No. Because 1 John 1, 8 and 1 John 1, 10 says, If any man say that he hath not sinned or has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But, does 1 John chapter 3 say, He that is born of God doth not commit sin? Yes, it does say that. So, we can take verses like that, and it's, it's actually verses 6 through 9 that say his seed remaineth in him. And a man who's born again, and he has that new man in him, and he has armed himself with the mindset of the new man, he is willing to deny himself, to crucify himself with Christ, to suffer like Christ suffered, and ceases from sin. Not in an absolute sense of the word, but in the same sense that it's used in 1 John chapter 3 from the easy practice of sin without any remorse, limitations, or regret or hatred of it. Because we choose to be like Christ. I am willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. You know, if the Arminians, when they gave their invitations, would preach verses verses like this, the numbers that would come forward would be more sincere, wouldn't they? But do you know how many would come forward? About as many as followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And how many did he get in the upper room in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1? How big was the church? 120. Had he fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children on one occasion? He had, he had taught great multitudes, but the numbers that truly followed him were so few because the Christian religion and the discipleship of following Christ is a life of self-denial. Are we willing? Are we ready? Are we committed to go out of this place today? I must be about my Father's business. 
Not my will, but thine be done. I want you to be thinking about everything you have an inclination toward. And we have inclinations toward all kinds of things. You're, listen, some of you may be television addicts. What do you watch? You must be about your father's business. He is your father. He is your heavenly father. What music do you listen to? What friends do you have? Somebody will watch. I see the hand going up. But Jesus hung around. Jesus hung out with sinners. No, he didn't. You're reading the wrong Bible. Are you sure you're not in the Koran? Jesus ate with repentant sinners. Right. And that our word makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. It means David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. We love reading about David even though he was an aggravated adulterer and murderer along with a number of other sins the Bible records for us. All these wills, all these lusts, all these desires that reach out and want to clutch at the world and clutch at sin, they're all sorts. They're cruelty toward your spouse. They're revenge toward your spouse. Your spouse has hurt your feelings. So you as a husband are bitter. If you're going to be about your father's business, you need to hit the silver lever on all bitterness towards your wife. You say, well, she did... What does that have anything to do with it? Would you please tell me what that has anything to do with it at all? You're forgetting the 10,000 talents. Do you know how much you've done to repay the 10,000 talents to God? Zero. Say, well, she hasn't come and begged for mercy. Then sit down like a real man and present the problem to her and say, we need to settle this matter and do it the right way and do it the Lord's way because I want to be about my father's business of being a better husband. And so instead of being bitter at you for the next year or two, let's sit down and get this over with. And here's the part that I've done that's wrong, and here's the part that you've done that's wrong. Can we do it the Lord's way, then get down and pray together in Matthew eighteen nineteen, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, don't be surprised if your house shakes and you need to buy a new house. Because you've been doing your Father's will. Right. You've been doing your, His will instead of your will. He that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Are you, are you willing to suffer in the flesh? I'm used to eating 20 pieces of Little Caesar's cheap pizza. Are you willing to suffer in the flesh? You know, if you start eating 10 instead of 20, which is probably still twice what you need, your stomach will shrink and your mind will shrink to where it gets down to where it used to be. Oh, you wouldn't believe it. When Little Caesars first came out, I mean, it was uh, Stadium Boulevard in Ann Arbor. Remember that? That little Caesar out there in the little loincloth with the spear up and a... We had never seen it. A man named Dennis Specknagel brought one to our house after a Sunday evening service. The smell of... I'd never smelled pepperoni in my life. I mean, you know, mom thought that roast beef, peas, and mashed potatoes were the way that we were supposed to eat. And in came... I never smelled mozzarella cheese before. Mozzarella, garlic, and pepperoni. Remember that night? Do you remember that, brother? But it was one pizza. You know how many hungry wolves were around that table? We weren't very big wolves. What a difference. Excess. Are we going to have the word excess in here? Is our society given to excess? What's excess sports called? Extreme sports. How many sports channels are there right now that are 24-7? Be careful. Okay. That is the answer. Right. Too many. That is excess. Are there other companies chasing ESPN and their 10 networks of 24-7 sports channeling? Excess. Excess. Do you want to be a Christian? Jesus didn't engage in excess in any part of his life except doing the will of God. If you want to be in excess, then make it the will of God. Make it prayer. Make it reading the Word of God. If you're going to, if you're going to err in excess, let's make it good things that God approves of, not things the world approves of. He that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. I hope I've explained it enough. This is mortifying the flesh. This is being crucified with Christ. 
This is bearing your cross. This is Romans 6, verses 1 through 11. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death. So you're dead to sin. You're alive to righteousness. We, we come up out of the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. This is what it means here. We've suffered in the flesh. That means we've denied our flesh because we've stopped sinning in the way that we used to sin. Not stopped sinning absolutely, but in the way that we used to. In the magnitude that we used to. In the excess that we used to. In the way the world does. That He no longer should live the rest of His time in the flesh. That is, while you're in this body, to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. It's still the body that's being considered here that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, in his body, to the lust of men. We do not want to give our bodies over to the lust that other men allow with their bodies, but we want to give our bodies over to the will of God, which is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, arming yourselves likewise with the same mind, that she may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The will of God. We want to do the will of God. That is why we're here today. If you don't know why you came today, it's to know the will of God and to be reminded of the will of God and to be pressed toward the will of God and to be condemned in your flesh for allowing the lust of your flesh to consume you to excess in any point on the whole spectrum of righteousness. And it covers all of us. It gets all of us. It nails us. Because it's broad and we're sinners. Lord, help us. Let us be disciplined. Let us be structured. Let us be self-denying. Titus chapter 2 says the, the, the grace of God that appears to all men teaches us that. Denying ungodliness. We should live soberly and righteously in this present world. First right. Peter chapter 4 that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. The rest of the years. How many do you have left? You know, we don't know. There is nothing wrong with New Year's resolutions. The fact that you have seen so many people, especially the one that you notice when you're looking in a mirror, that have had New Year's resolutions and didn't keep them, that doesn't make them wrong. Much of the, much of God's church under the Old Testament were driven by an annual calendar. God made the year, and God made the sun and the moon and the stars for periods of time. There's nothing wrong with a New Year's resolution. I'm convicted right now about 2015 for all of us. We are going to stress before this day's over. We've had it stressed to us today from Psalm 119. We got it on Wednesday night about reading the Bible more, reading the Bible better in the year 2015. There's nothing wrong with amping ourselves up, recommitting ourselves, rededicating ourselves. I don't have to have an invitation with just as I am to get you down to the front. We can do it in our pews and in the pulpit. Let's make 2015 a year of greater personal discipline. A life of self-denial for the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that some of you, when you get convicted about certain things, sometimes you'll take drastic measures. You know, as long as you understand that that drastic measure is to give a gift to God and to get you on the right track, there's nothing wrong with drastic measures. The excess that we want in our lives is excess for the Lord. But we don't want to make that a binding commandment on anyone else. Some of you that have had trouble in the past with alcohol. I know that you've made commitments. I will not drink for a year. And not a drop has touched your mouth. And if that's what you need to break a habit, if that's what you need to give a gift to the Lord, if if that's something that you're giving up, or it could be sleep, or it could be vengeance, or it could be more time with your wife, or it could be more time reading the Bible, it could be more time in prayer, it could be the food buffet. It, It doesn't matter. The whole range of righteousness... Can we do better in 2015? Listen, brethren, we don't suffer. We do not know what these people were enduring. As I study this passage, I have been so perplexed to try to make this real to you. Because we don't suffer. None of you are going to die this week. No one's going to be hauled out in public and beaten this week. No one's going to lose their house this week. No one's going to have their children taken from them this week. We don't suffer. So how do we suffer? 
We're going to take this context and we're going to, we're going to contract it down to the lust of the flesh, which are right here. And that is what the apostle is preaching here, but he's also preaching to a group of people that were suffering persecution, trials, trouble, and even death. That he no longer should live the rest of his time. When a person is converted, there should be a changed life. A changed life. Real Christians change. Do you know what the number one accusation against Christianity is? Hypocrisy. Because they've seen so much of it. Let's not let that be here. We can be hypocrites in all kinds of ways. This passage alone will get all of us. Let's take 2015. I must be about my father's business. 2015 is going to be my godliest year living. That'd be a wonderful way to approach this new year. There's nothing wrong with using a calendar to remind us and to rededicate us. Just go look at the Old Testament. You're reading about new moons and new years and seven years and 49 years and 50 years and Pentecost and Jubilee and all that. All that's calendar-based. We're not doing it as a commandment. I'm just asking you if you if that helps you to, to, to turn over a new leaf as it is, to, to start afresh. And we're, and we're going to have some little reminders up here called bookmarks in the Bible. You know, maybe someone... Maybe someone will make a little bookmark that'll say, I must be about my father's business. And we'll just put it there beside the green bookmark, right in our Bibles every day, I must be about my father's business. How much am I going to sleep? How am I going to treat my wife? How much am I going to eat? What am I going to watch? How much am I going to drink? How am I going to work today? I must be about my father's business. This ambassador, though full of imperfections, faults and weaknesses and feebleness, does not want our church to ever be average. And a church is made great by every individual part of it being great. And being great in this context is the only one that really matters to me. And that's being great in godliness. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Donald's 50. I thought I'd get his head that way. He was reading. He wasn't doing anything wrong. Just wanted Donald. Dave, you're 60. How much time do we have left, brother? Dad, how much time? You young men, do you know how many of us wish we could go back and start over our lives at your age? In some respects? that he no longer should live the rest of his time. How much time do we have left? You know, the world says things like, let's go out with a blaze of glory. We don't have any glory, and we're not going to give much glory. We just want to give it all to the Lord. But let's go out with a blaze. Let's go out doing our best. You young men, you have more strength. Your minds are more have more acuity to memorizing. You can feast on the Word of God. You can suck all that in. You can take it up. You can work longer hours. You can, you can do more. You can, some of you don't even act like you need sleep. I know you do. I'm trying to turn this to us on the brink of a new year. That he no longer should live the rest of his time. Let's make 2015 better than 2014. Let's press forward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's strain and stretch and keep our eyes focused on that mark. And let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and race for the prize of God in Christ Jesus. Realizing that on both sides of the track there's a cloud of witnesses and at the end is the Lord of glory, and we shall give account of our lives to Him in all the ways that I've mentioned and the thousand other ways I didn't mention. For the time past of our life. Verse 2 is, two choices every day. Am I going to use my body to the lusts of men or to the will of God? Every day you make that choice. Verse 3, for the time past of our life, before we were converted, may suffice us. That should make you fall. You should be full of sin because before you were converted, you tried enough of it. Or after you were converted, you tried enough of it. For the time past of our life, that is the stuff that's yesterday and before. Yesterday and before. 
2014 and before, the time past, should make us full, should suffice us, satisfy us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. We've already done their will enough in our lives. Let's not do the will of the Gentiles or the will of this world anymore. Let's do the will of God. When we walked in lasciviousness, lasciviousness is unbridled lust, just a wanton approach to life. It means inclined to lust, it's lewd, it's wanton, it's undisciplined, ungovernable, not amenable to control, unmanageable, rebellious. Just a, just a wild way of living. It's America's way of living. No fear. Do whatever I want. I'm my own man. I'm following my own heart. We don't want to live that way. That's the way we used to live. That's the way the world lives. We want to lay that aside. We should be full of that because we've already done enough. And you say, well, I've only done a little bit in my life because I was raised as a Christian from a ch-. That's okay. You still should be full. That's right. Because any of it should satisfy you that you've already tried their way of living. Do you know how much we could talk about that? The will of the Gentiles in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, living their way, what does it get you? For, you know, when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to get judgment. If we're the Lord Jesus Christ now, we're going to get chastened. But I'm talking about from a natural standpoint, they're the ones with hangovers. They're the ones that lose their jobs. They're the ones that are never happy even though they're out partying all the time. This is the partying atmosphere of America in 2014. And the reason that the apostle only, you know, each list is different. Sometimes he brings up, you know, all sorts of things like witchcraft and um, envy and hate and murder and kidnapping and man stealers and so forth. But in this one, he brings up party sins. Party sins. Because they're the ones that the world is going to press on you. And brethren, in 2014, is there pressure on you to be more like them when it comes to this time of the year? They want you at their parties. Some of you that work in offices have now figured out what us older men learned earlier. Between Thanksgiving and the end of the year, the productivity of America stinks. Because they've taken their holidays to an excess. And I appreciate those of you that are st- keeping your nose to the grindstone during this five to six week period and you're about your father's business because your father wants you to be a faithful employee and just because the rest of the employees are basically absent without leave during those six weeks, you can be present. We, on and on it goes. The things they do. You know, wine is a mocker. How's wine a mocker? By going to a party, getting drunk, and doing something that you are going to later regret and be made fun of for doing it. And that's what the world does. We could go through this and tear it apart from a natural standpoint. We can tear it apart from a scriptural standpoint. And I hope I've already done that to a great extent. The time past of our life should suffice us. We should be full and not want any more because we've already done the will of the Gentiles in our lives. And here's the will of the Gentiles in this particular place. Lasciviousness. Doing whatever you want. People that are lascivious are not going to make it to heaven. If you're a child of God, then you're going to act like God is your Father. You're going to be about your Father's business. Galatians five nineteen and 20 says that lasciviousness is a work of the flesh, and those that live that way are on their way to hell. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is the truth of God's Word. Yes, it's a high standard. Yes, it can be compared to crucifixion. Yes, we should take up our cross daily and follow Him. Yes, you'll lose friends. Yes, you'll lose influence in the world. So be it. In the world to come, you'll own all things. Lasciviousness, lust. Your lusts are those craving desires. This point I want to make, and I've tried to say it, a lust... If, if we go look in the Bible, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not lust, thou shalt not desire. So we look at that word lust, it means to covet something, it means to desire something. Our lusts, our craving, our intense cravings for things that God has said we can't have. That is sex outside marriage. That is cruel sex inside a marriage. That is a sharp mouth. That is sarcastic cutting of others. Let your speech be all way with grace. On and on we could go. 
We crave those things. Do you know how fast your tongue comes out with sarcasm and how slow it comes out with a prayer? When was the last time you were walking in your house or you were at work or something bad happened and you came out with a prayer? Out comes sarcasm. Out comes that sword. There is that speaketh like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise is health. Lust. And the point that I want to make, John would say in 1 John chapter 2, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that is your bodily appetites, the lust of the eyes, that's your visual appetites, and the pride of life, everything that is self-defensive, everything that is self-promoting, that's everything that is in the world. And those things are to be restricted, and we want to deny them. We've already lived that way. That's the way the world lives. That's the way the Gentiles live. Here's one of the little proofs in, the, in this book that tells us that the audience were Jews. Otherwise, the appeal would not have been made this way. The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine. I hope I've dealt with that enough already. Drinking too much, revelings, that's partyings. That's a frat party. Anything like a frat party. Listen, listen, when you have a birthday party for your children, who told you that a birthday party for children needs to be a celebration of stupidity and insanity? Who told you that? I know who told you that. I just want you to tell me who told you that. The world told you that. Why can't you have some sobriety even at birthday parties for even younger children? If you want to have celebrations of insanity and stupidity, then you are training your children to be insane and stupid. I just want to, listen, I don't want to look at that word revelings and just think about frat parties. Can we have fatted calf feasts in our church and have too much revelry? Can we have a fatted calf feast in our church and have too much banqueting? That's the next word. And abominable idolatries. Christmas. There's a reason we don't celebrate Christmas. It's an abominable idolatry. Why in the world would a Baptist ever want to observe Christ's Mass? Why would a Baptist ever want to do anything based on the solar calendar of what takes place at the winter solstice? Why would a Christian ever want to have an evergreen tree in their house when the Bible says that idolatry in the Old Testament was practiced under green trees? And since all trees are green at certain times except my red maples, then it must be referring to evergreen trees. And all you have to do is look up in history and find out where that came from. Why is there so much revelry around Christ's Mass? Baptists don't observe Catholic holidays. It's an abominable idolatry. Revelation chapter 17, 1 through 6, talks about the great whore riding upon the Roman Empire into power, and she has a golden chalice in her hand full of fornication with the kings of the earth and with idolatry, and her name is... Babylon the Great, the Great Whore, Mystery Babylon, Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth. Abominations of the Earth. Her holy days are abominations. No Baptist in this country 150 years ago celebrated Christmas. They've changed. We haven't changed. We're holding to the Word of God. We want the old paths and we should stick to them. I had a wonderful email this morning. Wonderful email this morning from... uh, from from Oregon, a woman that grew up in Piedmont, South Carolina, moved away 10 years ago. The Lord's been convicting her and her husband. They got rid of Halloween two years ago because of our website. They got rid of Easter last year because of our website. And they got rid of Christmas this year because of our website. This is all glory to God if you don't know. It is never about us. It's always about Him. It's always about His truth, and it's always about them. Abominable idolatries. The time past of our life may suffice us. We've had enough of all of this. The will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, a party atmosphere, going out, partying. You know, a simple little rule. And you young people are going to despise are not going to like this little rule. Prove it wrong to me. If you're not at work under adult supervision, anything after 9 o'clock is sin. Go ahead and hate me for it. 
I'm his ambassador, and you'll answer to him in a day soon. We all know what goes on at night. You know, we wished in certain respects that we lived in the old farming environment, that at about 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock, things began to shut down. Families came in, had supper together, went to bed about 8 o'clock so that they could get up at 4 o'clock and go out and have the first milking of the day. What a totally different lifestyle. They are called nightclubs for a reason. They don't operate during the day. And what in the world are you doing away from home after 9 o'clock at night? You know, if your father wants to make it 6, I'll take your family out to eat. I don't care if you like me or not. All of you children don't know anything about life, and you don't understand temptation, you don't understand the world yet, and we're trying to protect you from it. Sin happens at night in a proportion to during the day that is unbelievable. Because men love darkness because their deeds are evil, and they don't want to be near the light. And families have been degenerated by, by companies working 24-hour-a-day shifts so that family is not together for the father to pull them all together again at the end of the day at 6 o'clock or so to have supper together, have devotions together, and go to bed. Instead, the best television, you know, what they call the best television prime time, shifts later into the evening from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock, depending on what age group you're part of, and it corrupts our family lives. 2015 can be a better year. We can be sufficed with what we've had of the world and the will of the Gentiles in the past. Let's do better. They're going to think you strange that you don't run with them to the same excess of riot. They're going to speak evil of you, but they are going to give an account to Almighty God who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.